Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I'm glad you joined us today. It seems more and more, doesn't it, that we live in times of uncertainty, and there's a lot happening around us in the world today. Yet, despite these challenges, I am so optimistic about what the future holds for you and for me. And with all the disruption in the world, I hope that this podcast can contribute to the good in your day. And I hope today that you hear something that can help you get a better view of your place in the world and how you can live to your potential. And when you're done listening today, if you find some good ideas here, be sure to share this podcast with someone else. And if you can, subscribe so you automatically get the next podcast as it's released each week. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about the proximity principle. If you've ever traveled in Asia, you've likely been to some fascinating cities. Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Bali are definitely unique and worth visiting. But one of the most fascinating cities is Kuala Lumpur. It's a territory and capital city of Malaysia and home to 1.7 million people and the tallest twin buildings in the world, the Petronas Towers. And what made Kuala Lumpur most famous in recent years is what happened on the night of March 8th, almost eight years ago. Just after midnight, a Boeing 777 took off from the international airport with 227 passengers and 12 crew aboard headed to Beijing, China. The flight was scheduled for nine hours and 40 minutes. So after takeoff, the passengers likely settled into their seats trying to sleep through the night and early morning hours. As the Malaysia Airlines flight ascended to 35,000 feet, about 38 minutes after takeoff, the pilot communicated with Malaysia Air Traffic Control when they radioed saying, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120.9. Good night. This meant they were handing off control to the Vietnamese Air Traffic Control Center. Zahari Ahmad Shah, the 53-year-old pilot, answered, Good night, Malaysian 370. But he did not reach out to Vietnamese air traffic control, which he was supposed to do. Now, air traffic control tracks a plane through primary radar, and primary radar relies on simple pings off objects in the sky. Air traffic control systems also use what's known as secondary radar. And this depends on a transponder signal that is transmitted by each airplane and contains rich information, for instance, the plane's identity and altitude. Well, five seconds after Flight 370 crossed into Vietnamese airspace, the symbol from its transponder dropped from the screens of Malaysian air traffic control. And 37 seconds later, the entire airplane disappeared from secondary radar. The time was 1.21 a.m., 39 minutes after takeoff. Now, the Vietnamese controllers also saw Flight 370 cross into their airspace, then disappear from radar. And they tried repeatedly to contact the aircraft, to no avail. And by the time they picked up the phone to inform Kuala Lumpur, 18 minutes had passed since 370's disappearance from their radar screens. And what ensued was an exercise in confusion and incompetence. Kuala Lumpur should have been notified immediately of the disappearance, but the two control centers failed to communicate and four hours elapsed before an emergency response began. 
Well, by the next morning, dozens of aircraft and ships in the region were searching for Flight 370, but it had simply disappeared. It was a mystery. Now, how in this day and age, with the technology that we have aboard the most sophisticated aircrafts, could a Boeing 777 simply disappear? Well, what the search of the data soon revealed was as soon as 370 disappeared from secondary radar, it turned sharply to the southwest, flew back across the Malay Peninsula, and out across the Indian Ocean, where it faded beyond radar range into obscurity. Now, you may ask, how common is it to lose an aircraft from radar and have it disappear? Well, in the last 10 years, there have been a handful of private aircraft and military aircraft that have disappeared, usually over the Amazon rainforest or other remote areas. But no commercial airliners have disappeared until Flight 370. So to lose a Boeing 777, experts say, is almost impossible. The Boeing 777 is meant to be electronically accessible at all times, and the disappearance of the plane has provoked a host of theories, and many are preposterous. Some claim that the plane was hijacked and landed on a remote island. Others claim that the plane was blown apart by terrorists, and soon one theory after another surfaced, but none were ever proven. And on the evening of the airplane's disappearance, a middle-aged American man named Blaine Gibson was sitting at home when he heard the news about Flight 70 on CNN. Gibson, an attorney, had set and achieved the goal to visit every country on the earth, and he saw himself as an explorer. So he decided to help solve the mystery. What he learned was, it turned out that Flight 370 had continued to link up with a satellite in space for six hours after the plane had disappeared. And during those six hours, it remained at high speed, at high altitude, and he also learned that after six hours, the Doppler data indicated a drop, a steep descent, as much as five times greater than the normal descent rate, meaning it fell out of the sky. Now, in the ensuing weeks and months, while large-scale underwater searches were going on in the Indian Ocean for the aircraft, Gibson took a different path. He believed under any scenario there would be debris from a crash. So he visited the coast of Cambodia, and he asked whether anyone there had stumbled on anything. They hadn't. He flew to Myanmar, where he went to the coast and asked some villagers where debris tended to drift ashore. And they directed him to several beaches, but he found nothing. But he advised the visitors to be on the lookout, left his contact number, and moved on. Then he visited the Maldives and other islands, again enlisting the help of local people. Then came July 29, 2015, about 16 months after the airplane went missing. A cleanup crew on the French island of Reunion found a piece of debris called a flapperon, which is attached to the trailing edge of the wings. And it had a serial number matching Flight 370. Gibson immediately flew to Reunion in search of other debris. Then, following the advice of the locals, Gibson went to Mozambique. There, he talked with local fishermen and was told of a sandbank called Paluma that lay beyond a reef where fishermen would go to collect nets and buoys that had washed in from the Indian Ocean. Well, Gibson paid a boatman, went there, and found a gray triangular scrap of metal about two feet across. The scrap, from a horizontal stabilizer panel, was determined to be from Flight 370. 
then he went to the remote northeastern shores of Madagascar. And this turned out to be the mother load. He found three pieces of aircraft debris on the first day, another two a few days later, and the following week on a beach eight miles away, three more pieces were delivered to him. And so it has gone ever since. Word has gotten around that he will pay for Flight 370 debris, and it has been delivered to him in spades. Now, those involved in the investigation called this the Gibson effect. Gibson did what no one else was willing to do. He localized the effort. He mobilized the people who knew where debris would be found. And he traveled to and met with them. He sought out their help. Now, Gibson's discovery of so many bits of debris confirmed that the satellite signals were correct. The airplane flew for six hours until the flight came to a sudden end, crashing in a way that created debris. And this contributed to the likely conclusion that the pilot, who's the prime suspect, took control of the cockpit after takeoff, turned off the radar signal when they crossed into Vietnamese airspace, flew the aircraft to 40,000 feet with the cabin depressurized, causing the passengers and crew to pass out from lack of oxygen. Then he turned the plane purposefully, flying back over Malaysia for one last longing look at his country, before heading out into the vast, empty Indian Ocean, where the plane ran out of fuel, entered into a nosedive, and disintegrated into pieces. Gibson, more than anyone else, solved the mystery. Now, perhaps you, like me, wonder from time to time why things go off course in our life. Perhaps your business is a bit off course right now, or even a marriage or relationship may be off its design path. It happens to all of us, and often it's not the result of our own actions. And if that's the case, or if you're just trying to become better, take a lesson from the Gibson effect. There is power in getting on the ground level. Proximity is power. When we understand the issue from the perspective of those who know things best, when we model their way of doing things, we eliminate the mystery of how to succeed. As Tony Robbins says, long ago, I realized that success leaves clues and that people who produce outstanding results do specific things to create those results. And I believed that if I precisely duplicated the actions of others, I could reproduce the same quality of results that they had. Now, this is an extremely powerful principle. Years ago, I had a person I respected a great deal give me some advice and I followed it for quite a while. He told me to read one biography of an excellent person, an excellent life, each month. He said that reading biographies is different than any other book. You get to see things from another's point of view. And if you're reading the right biography, you get close, proximate, and see things from the point of view of a person who has lived in excellent ways. You get to put their view on your window. Well, I followed his advice, and for a while thereafter, I kept a biography on my bed and would read before I went to sleep. And this was a time of real growth for me. There was something wonderful about the proximity of their life during that time. I even tried to copy some of their behavior and definitely used their perspective in my life. It was a great strength to me. This is an example of the power of the proximity principle. Proximity works. 
Now, to be proximate is to be very near, close, or forthcoming. The root of the word is the same as the word approach. And interestingly, it comes from the same root word as reproach. You see, when we come closer or proximate to people we admire or who have done something we're trying to do, several things happen to us. Sometimes it feels like a reproach because we are humbled when we see how far we must progress to be like them. But most often, we feel inspired that we can do better, perhaps even that our time is forthcoming, is approaching. A few years ago, two Rhode Island researchers did a comprehensive review of research behind Alcoholics Anonymous. They reviewed 13 studies that had been conducted to determine the mechanisms that led to successful intervention and change by those who attended AA. And here's what they learned. AA was not successful due to its training content or processes. These were only mild factors in the person's ability to find lasting change. However, the chief reason the program worked was its ability to provide free, long-term, easy proximity and exposure to common therapeutic elements such as companionship, modeling of behavior, faith in a higher power, and so forth. It is the proximity of things that makes AA work. You see, when someone can get close, even next to those that are demonstrating success, AA works. Success leaves clues. You see, they understand that when you get people close to those who are having success, others are somehow made stronger, smarter, and more capable. And this is true for you as well. If you're leading a team and wanting to make better progress, get proximate with those who are doing the right activities. If you're in a family and want your kids to do better, get them proximate to others who are on the right track. Let's say you're trying to stick to your New Year's goals for weight loss or exercise. Use the proximity principle. Get proximate with people that are doing the same. Get proximate with a greater understanding of what's required and get proximate with your sense of purpose. The proximity effect can be found in many areas of our life. In audio recording, like this podcast, audio technicians use the term proximity effect to describe what happens when a person is very close or even touching the mic with their lips when they speak. And the resulting effect is heard as a fattening up of the voice. Many radio broadcast microphones are large diameter microphones, and many radio announcers use this proximity effect to add a sense of gravitas and depth to their voice. And that's what proximity does. It adds gravitas and depth to what we do. In psychology, the proximity effect has been studied numerous times. Those people which are in close proximity to us, meaning geographically, emotionally, or in other ways, tend to direct or guide our perspective, and our behavior, and our desired goals. So here's the point. If you really want to impact something, follow Gibson's example and get close to those who know how, seek out the experts, and be proximate to them. And soon you'll think like they think and do more of what they do. Now, I don't expect this principle is a big revelation to you. You already understand the proximity effect. 
especially if you have kids. I mean, if you have kids, you know they copy those they are close to. Someone once said, if you want to hear the sound of your own accent, (laughs) listen to your kids talk. You see, we pass on more than our accent or eye color to our children. And any parent knows that many of their habits, good or bad, get passed on to the next generation. Well, that's been true for me. My kids have gotten good and bad from me. After my wife Jennifer and I were married, one day we decided we were tired of sleeping in and doing whatever we wanted in a clean house. So we had kids. And then stupidly, we didn't just have one. We had five. And do you know what it's like adding a fifth child to your family? Well, Jim Gaffigan describes it like this. Imagine you're in the middle of the ocean, barely treading water, exhausted, with no life vest, and you're drowning. And then someone hands you a baby. That's what a fifth child is like. Parenting is no easy task. Someone once asked moms about their perspective on parenting young kids. And one mom said, 90% of parenting is just thinking about when you can lay down again. Another said, no one makes more observations than a child sharing a stall with his mother inside a public restroom. Well, you know, raising kids is an adventure. And when I was raising kids, sometimes I was just done. I remember when my son was younger, he asked me, Dad, was I adopted? And I said, not yet, but we've placed an ad. But in all truth, living life is like running a relay race. When we're done, we're going to hand the baton to our children. And when they're done, they'll hand it to their children. And every lap we run in proximity to our kids is passed on to those who come after us. I still today have certain behaviors and traits from my parents, and I haven't lived with them for 40 years. And no doubt, you are the same. So if all of this is true, then how do we take advantage of proximity power? How do we turn it to our good? Well, it begins with being clear about what you want and why you want it. Once you get clear, you can begin to find those who can help you. You can begin to narrow the distance with your familiarity and skills on the topic. Years ago, I decided I wanted to be a better communicator, and I had several people I knew who were exceptional in this area. So I made it a point to get closer to them. I mimicked their moves and studied their style, and soon I started, little by little, to get a bit better, to improve. One skilled communicator spent several days with me, critiquing my words and style, coaching and re-coaching. We rented a video studio and recorded my presenting and talking over and over again, and and he coached me on how to improve. It was life-changing for me, and it wouldn't have ever happened if I had not first decided what I wanted. Now, perhaps you want to be a better teacher or communicator or person of faith or leader. Whatever it is, everything begins, changes, and improves and comes about when you decide. Next, find the best in the world at what you want to do and do whatever it takes to be near them. Work for them, be around them, attend their trainings, read their books, ask for their help, and add value to them. Don't just be around them once. Repetition is paramount to success. And as you get closer to them and what they teach, you'll discover the clues their success is leaving behind. Then seek to follow those clues with all your heart. 
When you seek to master something, it does become part of you. Malcolm Gladwell famously said that mastery takes 10,000 hours of doing something. And in my opinion, it takes that kind of effort to get closer, to get proximate, to narrow the distance between where you are today and where you want to be tomorrow. Now, I've seen a lot of business builders join a team thinking they only need a few weeks of proximity with that team to reach success. But it rarely happens. It takes repeated, proximate interaction to gain mastery. Now, sometimes, as you're trying to get proximate to an expert, it's tough to connect in person. What do you do then? Read. Immerse yourself in what you want to master. Read, and you will begin to adopt the author's voice. Feed your most useful tools, your brain, your spirit, and your intellect. Here's the thing. I know people in my life who have given themselves to daily study of Scripture, reading. One of those people is my mother. She's read about faith, and it's now part of her. She's read about love and charity and patience and kindness, and these are all now part of who she is. And she did this by reading and reading throughout her life. Every time you listen to a podcast or read something uplifting, it slowly becomes part of you. So choose what you repeatedly read and listen to. Choose well. It can and does change you. J.D. Solinger said, What really knocks me out is a book that, when you're done reading it, you wish the author that wrote it was a friend of yours and you could call him up whenever you felt like it. I feel that way about so many authors. Reading is to the mind what exercise is to the body. As the proverb says, a child who reads will be an adult who thinks. In 2007, I was pursuing my PhD, and my major professor and I started a large research study to determine what enabled people to change. Not just change a habit, but to change the entire trajectory of their life and literally become different people. To do this, we identified a large number of adults who had scored high on tests of leadership, achievement, altruism, and humility, and who had experienced a significant change in their life. We then conducted hours and hours of interviews. And what we expected to find was some common traits or background among these people. Perhaps they had parents who raised them in similar ways. Perhaps they came from a similar income or race or education. Maybe some of these things played a factor. But what we found surprised us. It wasn't personality characteristics, learned behavior, age, income, or other similar circumstances that enabled people to grow and change. It was something unexpected. They all had a mentor of sorts. Some had a person proximate or close to them who guided them, who modeled the behavior they followed, or others had read a life-changing book. It was fascinating that a book or books were responsible for some of the participants' changes in life. One man we talked to had been less than stellar during his teenage years and younger adult life. He had moved from one job to another, had never really decided who he was. In his words, he had let mood and depression pull him this way and that throughout his marriage and the birth of his two children. Then it all caught up to him. Finally, his wife couldn't take any more of his mood swings. 
She was tired of being the parent and provider and everything else to the family, and she left. And when I say she left, she left the apartment, the children, and took with her the only income they had because he was unemployed at the time. For months, he lived in his car with his two kids, and it wasn't much of a car. He did anything and everything to find money to feed his children. It was in his car when his children were asleep that he started to read. Now, reading wasn't something that he was apt to do when he was younger, but trapped in his car at a time when he had to step up and take responsibility for who he was, reading was the only friend he had. Two books in particular captured his view. One was the New Testament and the other a book by a rather famous motivational speaker. He read both over and over again. He told me that at first the words seemed foreign to him, but as he pondered and reread them, it was almost like the authors became close friends and mentors to him. And slowly, their words became his. Their way of thinking became his. And his belief about who he was and what he could become started to change. You see, to that point in life, his parents and his wife had constantly told him he was worth nothing, but he started to see he was of great value. And it had never occurred to him that he could be more than who he was. But sitting in his car, he had become close, proximate to a different view. And months later, when an opportunity came his way, he had the personal posture and faith to jump at the chance. And this was something he said he would have never done without a change in his view. As a result, he's built his own business, provided an amazing life for his children, and most importantly, he is a different person today. Now, this type of experience wasn't unique to him. We talked to one person after another where proximity to a caring mentor, to an expert, a person, or inspired books changed who they were. And the truth is that reading is dreaming with your eyes open. And this has been proven in other studies as well. Reading, science shows, doesn't just fill your brain with information. It actually changes the way your brain works for the better as well. A growing body of scientific literature shows that reading is basically an empathy workout. By helping us to take the perspective of characters very different from ourselves, it boosts our emotional intelligence. And this effect can literally be seen in your brainwaves when you read. For example, if a character in your book is playing tennis, areas of your brain that would light up if you were physically out there on the court yourself are activated. Likewise, if you're trying to get better at anything, the impact on your brain is the same. Now, another line of research shows that deep reading, the kind that happens when we read for an extended period of time, builds up our ability to focus and grasp complex ideas. Studies show that the less you read, or if you tend to skim or just stick to reading the news or social posts, the more your essential abilities wither. Reading literally rewires your brain and creates different memory patterns and connections. Now, reading researchers as far back as the 1960s have always discussed what's known as the Matthew effect, a term that refers to the biblical verse in Matthew 13, 12, which says, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. 
Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. The Matthew effect sums up the idea that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, a concept that applies as much to reading and vocabulary as it does to money. Researchers have found that students who read books regularly, beginning at a young age, gradually develop large vocabularies. And vocabulary size influences many areas of your life, from scores on standardized tests to college admissions to job opportunities. Last, to enable the proximity principle in your life, be coachable. People who are coachable, not defensive, and open to receive and act on feedback, find that proximity is of great value to them. You know, not long ago, Kyle Williams, now a retired defensive tackle who played for the Buffalo Bills, shared his experience. Williams is a big man, over 300 pounds, and he was an All-American tackle for LSU and played 13 years with the Buffalo Bills. He was an exceptional player. However, shortly before his retirement, Williams reflected back on his life. He said as a young high school player, he was a bit arrogant. With raw natural talent, he always seemed to get by on his size or reputation. But he had a history teacher and a defensive coordinator in high school who changed his attitude and the direction of his life. One day, he was having a conversation with his coach and a father of another player. The father was saying how good Kyle was in front of the coach. And the coach listened and then said to both Kyle and the player's father, Kyle is talented, but you know, if he just worked as hard as he could all the time in practice, and if he would also play as hard as he can all the time, he could really be special. Kyle said it was then that he wanted to get proximate to that coach. And he did. And it was that proximity to that kind of attitude and discipline that enabled Kyle to go on to achieve great things on and off the field. Not long ago, I went to my 40th high school reunion. It was both weird and wonderful. Weird that so many years had passed and wonderful to see so many friends from my youth. Now, in attendance were two of my teachers. They've long since retired from teaching. But the minute I was close to them, The feeling of gratitude swept over me for how they had helped me along during my high school years. As we spoke, I immediately felt something. I was whisked back 40 years ago. And once again, I wanted their inspiration and their experience, their knowledge. I'd relied on them so much as a teenager. And I immediately felt that proximity, that closeness again. And I realized something, that they are part of me. Their coaching is a part of me. I am not just me because what I have done. I'm me because they shared what they know and who they were and are with me. There is power in proximity. So as we end today, and as we are in proximity with each other in this podcast, let me say this. No one ever rises to low expectations. Set your expectations high. There are people around you who can help you. Align yourself with people you can learn from, people who want more out of life, people who are stretching and searching and seeking some higher ground in life. And remember the Gibson effect. You will find what you're looking for when you get close to those who know the way. And most of all, do the same for others. You have something they need. 
be proximate with them in their attempts to reach their goals. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And we'll talk about the next steps to opening your eyes in our next podcast. I look forward to being with you again soon.